0: your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to turn to Romans chapter 2 this morning, verses 25 to 29, and I just want to say that you should have been grateful last week that Pastor Matt, in preaching to us, did not continue on in our series because he would have been preaching on circumcision on Mother's Day. So I just wanted to go ahead and put that out there and say, you should be grateful. If you weren't, you need to be now. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and ask for your help this morning not out of routine, because we do this before we preach, but because we know we need your help, we need your spirit. We ask, Lord, that you would help me as I deliver your word to preach boldly and clearly and humbly. We ask, Lord, for all of us that you would give us ears to hear, we wouldn't just listen, but we would be doers of the word. Lord, we desire to be affected in this moment. We believe that these words are true and perfect and inerrant. They're your words. and We ask today as they're proclaimed that you would mix them with faith, that we would embrace them with fresh belief, and that our lives would be changed and transformed. Lord, we long to know your will and to walk in your way. We pray this in the lovely name of Jesus. Amen. Our text this morning is Romans 2, 25 to 29, so if you could please turn there in your Bibles, and if you don't have your own Bible, I'd invite you to turn to page 940 in your pew Bible to follow along with us. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision, but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart and spirit, not by the letter. His praise is from man, not from man, but from God. Since the birthday of the church... Christians have struggled with this question, am I truly saved? Now, first read, second read, maybe even third read of our text this morning, I will remind you that circumcision is mentioned 10 times in this text. And you may be looking at it going, where are we going to go with this? But actually, at the heart of this text is a topic that many of us struggle with in this room or have struggled with in the past, and that is the question, am I truly saved? Now, that question we have worded differently. It's not found this way in the Scriptures, but we've called it assurance of salvation. Can people know that they're saved? Or did God design it that we really couldn't be confident? I mean, some people believe that it it is presumption or pride to actually know that you're saved. Some think that God maybe designed it that way, so to keep you in line, because if you thought you were saved and knew you were saved and knew you were eternally secure... You wouldn't be in line, so he he doesn't want you to know. Well, the scriptures actually say that he does want you to know. Not only does it say he wants you to know, according to 1 John, that we can know, but that he wants you to examine yourself to make sure that you know that you're saved. You see, the question, am I saved, is one of the most important questions I could ever ask myself. I need to know the answer. I must know the answer to this question. You must know the answer to this question. I mean, the worst catastrophe we've already looked at in this passage is to face the eternal conscious wrath of God in hell. I was thinking this week, to be surprised by the words, it seems, in Matthew 7, that the Lord Jesus would say to me, Depart from me, Brian, I never knew you, would be the most catastrophic words I could ever hear. Can you imagine anything worse? But this is a group of people in Romans chapter 2 that are actually very assured of their salvation, but for the wrong reasons. But in this text, we find reasons how we could be sure of our salvation for the right reasons. Now, I don't know if you struggled in this regard, but 2 Peter 1.10 says this, Therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure, for if you do these things, you will never fail. So we're supposed to test ourselves to know the answer to the question, am I saved? It's a very proper thing to do. Some of us do it more than others. This may surprise you. I'm an introvert by nature. Those introverts that are in the room, welcome. (laughs) We like to be alone. That's how we recharge. Okay, when we come out amongst people, we, our battery goes down, and then we need to go recharge. Some of you are extroverts, and your battery is recharged by being with people, and it's depleted when you're by yourself. I'm not among you. I'm of the, la, uh, the former. Um, being an introvert by nature, though, has its downsides, too. That means that generally in my personality makeup, I, I think very deeply, and I judge my motives too much. And I'm always digging around for the sincerity of things. And so my personality makeup, and perhaps yours, has made doubting my salvation even more troublesome over the years. I recall a moment in graduate school, in seminary, where a friend came by and just told me he was converted. He was another seminary student. It was 1 a.m. I was studying for an exam, and he left my room, and I was totally paralyzed, I just said, I must not be saved. I mean, if he's not saved and he just got converted, I must not be saved. And and these were the tracks. I always tried to find assurance of salvation in all the wrong places. I know that sounds like a country song, but that's where I what I did. And maybe you have done the same. Sometimes I tried to find assurance of my salvation in my memory. In other words, I would try to remember exactly what happened on July 3rd, 1985. Do I remember the prayer? Did I say it right? I mean I just heard so and so's testimony and I don't remember saying it exactly like that. Did I do the right thing? Sometimes I would go down the sincerity path and try to find insurance there. Was I really sincere when I prayed to ask the Lord to save me? Was I were my motives pure? Was I just trying to escape hellfire and I got scared and so or other people were doing it and I walked the aisle too. The sincerity path is a dead end. It's a cul-de-sac. One that's a little more popular, and you'll even hear other Christians share it as kind of like the test for assurance, is the victory test. The victory test is basically this. If I'm not struggling with sin and I'm I'm seeing a lot of victory, I must be be saved. And so if I'm not struggling with sin habit or some type of stronghold in my life, then I must be all set, as they say in New England, and, and I'm good. But that one is not a good test either. Because all of those tests are focused on who? Me. They're not focused on Christ. They're not focused on his supernatural promise to regenerate a heart, repent of their sins and trust fully in his death, burial, and resurrection. So all of those really are dead ends. But in this text, believe it or not, even though it mentions circumcision 10 times, we find actually one of the greatest assurances of salvation anywhere in the Scriptures It's reflected a little differently, but look at the last phrase of our text, verse 29. His praise is not from man, but from who? His praise is not from man, but from God. I want want to ask you a question to all the struggling souls here this morning. If you could be confident that when God the Father looks at you, he is pleased, completely pleased. He completely accepts you, and his posture towards you is not one of wrath, anger or condemnation, but full and total acceptance, would that give you assurance of salvation? It should. Now, you're saying, well, well, it would, but how can I be confident? Well, that's what our text teaches us this morning. His praise is not from man, but from God. Now, we are going to deal with circumcision, and we're going to deal with this topic, and it's divided up in three parts i don't know if this helps you but my mind is simple so i like to see how a passage is broken out here's how it works verse 25 is going to deal with circumcision or the circumcised person and you could say this is the religious person this is religion this is ritual verses 26 and 27 are going to deal with the uncircumcised person the irreligious person and then verses 28 and 29 are going to deal with heart circumcision Or true religion. With that in mind, I want us to deal, first of all, with circumcision or religion. You'll notice in verse 25, it says, For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. Now again, this is not the topic that you will typically, as a Christian family, be talking about around the lunch table. Circumcision. I understand that. Besides the awkwardness involved, the social awkwardness of speaking about cutting away the flesh from the male reproductive organ, this is a difficult, gory, gruesome, and as one of my teenagers would say, it is a little bit um, cringy. Understandable. It is a bloody, gross, gory, creepy, cringy topic. Why not some other part of the body? I mean, all kinds of questions perhaps come to your mind that you think maybe too unspiritual to ask, but if you ever thought, why couldn't we have done a tattoo, God? I mean, something a little less awkward. I mean, Satan has 666, couldn't you have had, I don't know if you've ever thought this way, but I found myself again this week dealing with circumcision 10 times and five verses. God, could there have been another way? With that said, I do want you to understand that this is a huge theological topic and sign in your Old Testament and your New Testament. I mean, you can't read Galatians and not see it as a major theme. Why circumcision? And where? And why where? And why when? I just want to give you four truths that, real quickly, that I think will help you have a little theological background or toolbox on circumcision that will help you understand it when it comes up throughout your Bible. Here are the four. I'm going to give them to you quickly. First of all, where Why is it there? Why is it the male reproductive organ that is circumcised? Well, theologically, here's what you're going to find. Romans 5 teaches this. Genesis 3 teaches this, that the sin nature is given over through the man. That's a theological truth. That's why it is there. Maybe you ask, why is it on the eighth day? Why were Jewish males issued into the covenant community by being circumcised on the eighth day? Well, the eighth day is after the seventh day, right? That was a deep truth. That means it's the first day of the week. It was a picture of new creation, new life, ultimately the resurrection of Christ. Maybe you're asking the question, why, what about the how? I mean, why the cutting off of the foreskin of the male reproductive organ? Well, this was a picture. It's not, it was ceremonial, so we shouldn't say, you know, that's a picture today or that's a truth today, but it was a picture of corruption, And it was also ultimately, according to Galatians, a picture of being completely cut off, removed from God because of your corruption. And finally, you may ask, why? why? Well, it was a very bloody symbol. It was a reminder that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So if you wanted to have a good little working theology of circumcision for your Old Testament and your New Testament, these would be the four things that would help you. Where, when, how, and why. This happened on the eighth day, and he brings it up here because, remember, he's talking to a very religious group. He's already decimated the argument of, we got the law. We're all set. I mean, we were those that got the law at Sinai. We're God's chosen people. He's already decimated that argument, but they had another one. ho, oh, 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 oh. we have circumcision. We are the circumcised group. We have the sign. We have the signal. But they begin to look at the seal of the covenant as like a magical ceremony. No joke. It was a charm to them. It was superstitious confidence that we will never face the wrath of God because we have circumcision. Even the rabbis, these are taken from first century rabbis and their writings. Listen to this. One of the rabbis, he expresses their confidence in circumcision almost like it was a lucky charm. Listen to it. In the hereafter, Abraham will sit at the entrance of hell and permit no circumcised Israelite to descend into hell. That's how confident they were. Now, they didn't decide, they didn't say that they were perfect, they didn't have any sin, that they were without sin, they just thought it was like a protection to them. It's almost like the Iron Dome right now that the Israelis have, which is an amazing thing, that... It's that mobile all-weather defense system that intercepts all of these rockets that are being fired over into these populated areas right now. This was sort of like the Jewish Iron Dome. They thought that this would protect them from the ultimate wrath of God because they were God's chosen people and they had the sign. They were circumcised. Is it possible that we can have a similar mindset? Now, we could read this and go, you know, who would ever think that just by having the sign that that would protect you from the ultimate wrath of God because of your sin. Maybe you could look at it like these wedding bands that we exchange, weddings that I am able to officiate will generally ask the groom to be and the bride to be. Do you have a symbol of the vows you just made? And they will answer, yes, a ring. Then they place the ring on each other's fingers and they say, with this ring, I thee wed in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That ring is a symbol. That's all it is. It's a sign. It's not the actual vows. It's not the living of those vows, but it's a sign, isn't it, of those vows that until death we will not part and that we will be faithful to one another till death us do part. Those are promises signified by a ring. But what he's saying to these Jews, look at this in verse 25 and 26. He's saying, you have the symbol, but you don't obey. And he's saying, their circumcision did not make obedience make them holy. So I can say it this way. Their circumcision did not make them what their disobedience proved they were not. So by being circumcised, they were basically putting on the wedding band and saying, I plan to commit myself to you, God, and obey your law. But they were disobeying the law but saying, I got the ring. That would be like a husband committing adultery or a wife committing adultery and having an affair while saying, I've got the ring, though. I, I made the promises, and I, I had the seal, and so the, 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 the integrity of my marriage is, is right here on my finger. While you're disobeying... And violating the very words of God. This is similar to what he's saying to them. And in Galatians 5, verses 2 to 4, listen to the word of God. He says, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every one of you who accepts circumcision that he's obligated to keep the whole law. You're severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you've fallen from grace. He's saying, listen, if you're going to put your confidence in your religious ritual... Or what you've done, these symbols of the faith that God even commanded his people to do, you're just going to do them and think that that's going to keep you from the ultimate wrath of God? You've been severed from Christ. So let's ask ourselves this. While the topic at hand is not something that's relevant to us in specifics, do we try to find assurance of salvation through religious activities or rituals? Folks, let's not be naive here. The places on the planet that struggle with what we're looking at in Romans 2 the most are conservative evangelical churches like ourselves. I mean, we pride ourselves in being orthodox, making sure that everything we say or do, we try to tie it with Scripture. But there's, there's a little bit of this that almost is like the religion of nationality. For instance, years ago, not too many years ago, if you were from Britain, British, they were considered, you, you're going to be Anglican, because that's kind of what everybody is. Or you're Italian, you're going to be Catholic. You're Greek, you're going to be Orthodox. And there's kind of that, more, more in the South than, than up North, but that if you are an American, you're, you're Christian. You can have different flavors, but you're a Christian. I've even had people offended. In pastoral visits, when as their pastor, I ask them, or maybe their pastor to be, um, tell me about when you were saved. When were you born again? Insulted. (laughs) And then you'll hear reply something like this. I've been a Christian since I was born. And then you say, no, you weren't. (laughs) And that's when you have to show yourself out of the house, right? No, you weren't. No, you weren't. Um, But this can be Common. You hear people say, well, how long have you been a Christian? Well, I became a member of that church. They may talk about three or four decades ago. Or or they immediately talk about their baptismal date. We praise God as a good Baptist church about baptismal dates. Or maybe they trust that their Christianity and not Christ is going to keep them secure from God's ultimate wrath. So it's either baptism or maybe even their sinner's prayer. I, I said that prayer. I said that prayer. Or I have Christian parents Or I'm the third generation that's been a member of this local church. What we call that is dead orthodoxy, folks. What we call that is an intellectual grasp of the gospel, but no internal revolution, no change, no regeneration. This form of Christianity is outside out, not inside out. It's taking care of the outside of the cup while not addressing the inside of the vessel And he's saying to these Jews, these very self-righteous people, stop trusting in your religious ritual. I also find myself greatly concerned when I speak with someone and I talk to them about their relationship with the Lord and they begin to immediately talk about all of the things that they do in the church. Right? We're glad you do stuff in the church. But I want to tell you something, folks, if it hasn't hit you, when you stand before the Lord Jesus on that great judgment day, he will not ask you, how long were you a member at East Brandywine Baptist Church? He will not ask you, how many ministries were you involved in at East Brandywine Baptist Church? How many times did you give the gospel out while you were on planet Earth? He's not looking for any frequent flyer miles from you. but they had the frequent flyer miles. We know we're not perfect, but we have circumcision. I don't believe there's anybody in the room that's holding on to circumcision that way. But what other things are we leaning on and trusting on that are not Christ? So having the praise of God is the ultimate assurance of salvation. He deals with a group of people that were fully assured, but they shouldn't be. Now he's going to deal with a group of people, and I think it's more of a hypothetical group of people that ultimately are going to be Christian, Gentiles. And look at the next verse. In verses 26 and 27, he's going to deal with the uncircumcised or the irreligious. Look at this real quickly. He says, so if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Now, I know it sounds like double talk, but listen to his logic here. Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law, will condemn you who have the written code, the Bible, the law, and circumcision, but break the law. Now, are you still with me? I want you to, here's the little syllogism that Paul really tightly puts here. you got to see this. He says, circumcision minus obedience, here's some math, equals uncircumcision. You get that? Circumcision minus obedience equals uncircumcision while uncircumcision plus obedience equals circumcision. Did you see what he just said there? So so it's not the symbols. It's the change of life that results from a change of heart. So it's the other side of the coin here. He's saying if the circumcised can effectively become uncircumcised by their deeds, it's not the reverse, just as possible. It's sort of a hypothetical. Now, the Lord Jesus said this same thing. Here's, Here's what he said. It's more of a hypothetical. If we have someone here who's uncircumcised, they don't have the seal of the covenant, uh, uh, ushering them into the covenant community, but they're keeping the law. They're obeying the law. Who's the real circumcised one here? Who has the real deal? This one. The Lord Jesus said the same thing to the religious leaders. Do you remember this in Matthew 12? Can you imagine? You could hear a pin drop when Jesus said this the scribes and Pharisees, always after him, sniffing at his heels, and he says to them, the men of Nineveh will rise up at judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Can you imagine what those religious leaders thought when he said, at the great judgment day, Ninevites are going to be judging you? That was scathing. These were the pagans of the pagans. Then he says the queen of the south, queen of Sheba, will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon hold something greater than Solomon is here. Here's what he's saying. He's saying ultimately the uncircumcised Ninevites who repented are going to stand in judgment with the ones who have the ritual religious seal who weren't truly circumcised of heart. They weren't truly regenerate. They had the outward sign, but they did not have the inward transformation. Let's bring this home just to our own thinking. He's not teaching salvation by obedience here. He's saying that obedience is the evidence of true salvation. I hope you don't have one, but I want you to imagine for a moment if you do, or if you don't, imagine. If you do, it won't take imagination. But if you have an irreligious, cussing, living for the weekend, party neighbor right now, that annoys you, all week. If you have one, please don't raise your hand. But imagine, I mean, every Sunday morning when you're getting the family going to church, he's out there doing something, and you're like, oh, the pagan's cutting his grass again on the Lord's Day. I mean, I don't know what you're thinking. But I want you to imagine this cussing, irreligious, live-for-the-weekend party animal who, towards the end of his life, hears the gospel, repents of his sin, alone. And you find out at the great judgment day, you are only trusting in your forms and your rituals and your religion. And there's your cussing, irreligious, live for the weekend neighbor by Jesus at the great judgment day. Depart from me, the Lord says, I never knew you. You can almost hear the Jews saying, what? What? You're saying that the uncircumcised are going to participate in the judgment? Paul's saying the exact same thing Jesus said. You trust in your religious forms, it will lead you to an eternal conscious hell. That's where it will lead you. And all of us need to take stock here that the most catastrophic moment in our lives, which are all eternal, by the way, will be a moment where we understand that we were trusting in the forms of religion and not in Jesus. And he deals with these people, and he's now saying, here's the uncircumcised, and they didn't have the seals, they didn't have the formality, but they had the substance. And that leads us to the final point. He's going to describe what is true circumcision, what is true religion. Look at verses 28 and 29. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, Nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. The Jewish people had begun not only to look at circumcision as like a good luck charm, something superstitious, but they believed, according to the Galatian heresy, that God wanted all Gentiles to become Jewish. Not just Christian, but Jewish. And part of the the Galatian heresy was they weren't just saying you need to be circumcised. They were saying you need to be circumcised plus Christ because we want you to be Jewish. And he's saying circumcision was never about becoming Jewish. It was a sign, it was a prophecy, a shadow of one who would fulfill this ultimately. But look what he talks about here. He's going to describe something called heart circumcision. Please stay with me for a moment. Phil read this text from Deuteronomy and I have ready to go a little chain reference that we were gonna do 10 passages in the Old Testament and I was gonna show you every one of those 10 passages that talk about heart circumcision and we were gonna just enjoy it, but I don't have time. So you have to promise me you're gonna look at them later, but this is not just a New Testament concept. In Deuteronomy, as Phil read, he says, I don't, I don't like your stubborn hearts. I want an uncircumc- I want a circumcised heart. It's not just the seal. I want to see a circumcised heart. What does that look like? He even talks about circumcised ears. What does that mean? Well, here's what the text says. It gives us four things. You might want to jot these down. He says that, that circumcision of the heart is not outward and visible. It's inward and invisible. You see that? Shake your head if you see it. Secondly, he says it's in the heart, not the body. See that? Thirdly, it's affected by the spirit and not the law. Are you still with me? Fourthly, it wins the approval of God rather than human beings. It can't be done externally. It can't be done by myself. So what does it mean to have a circumcised heart? Please listen to me. Deuteronomy passage was the one that Phil read. It's like the second chain but it reveals to us exactly what we see consistently through all the passages that deal with a circumcised heart, and it is this. Rather than having a stubborn, stiff neck that resists the spirit of God and the word of God and the gospel and being self-righteous, it is having a new heart that actually wants what God commands. I could say it like this. Here is the ultimate test if you have a circumcised heart. Have you noticed since you have become a Christian become a Christian that you have begun to want what God says you ought to do? You have begun to discover that the desires in your heart have radically changed. Does that resonate with you? So so rather than going down the memory lane, do I remember what I prayed when I asked the Lord to save me, or the sincerity lane, was I really sincere, or the victory lane, how about this one? Can you see changed desires in your soul? 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says it this way. If anyone is in Christ, they're what? A new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So here's what it means to have a circumcised heart. When what you ought to do and what you want to do are the same things. What you most want to do and what you most ought to do are the same thing. That's a circumcised heart. So how would I know if I have a circumcised heart? Have you begun to want to do the things you ought to do? I mean, we see this in the Psalms all the time, don't we? I love the way the ESV translates it. The psalmist, David, or other Writers of the Psalter will say, oh, how I love your righteous rules. What? Who would ever say they love God's rules? People with circumcised hearts. First John puts it this way. You know you're in him because you love his what? Commands. So I have another question for us. How do you receive the commands of God? For instance, at a preaching moment like this, Is it aggravating? Is it irritating? Is it caustic? Or is it like, God, I want that. I'm not where I ought to be, but I want it. What do you give for an explanation for your wanter changing? Because I remember I was young, I was only 13 when I became a Christian, but I do remember that the wanter changed. There used to be this disparity between what God told me I ought to do and what I wanted to do. And the times those converged was because I just didn't want to get in trouble or I didn't want to have a hassled life. It was never because they were together. Newton, John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, infamously, he he had another hymn. He's got a a lot of other hymns. This one's not as famous, but it ought to be. And and it's in his only collection, And they've titled it, Our Pleasure and Our Duty. But listen to this one line. He's talking about a circumcised heart here. You've got to listen to this. It's old English, but you need to hear it. Our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before, since we have seen his beauty, are joined to part no more. Hear that again. Our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before, since we have, we could say this, been circumcised of heart, been saved been converted or joined to part no more. So do you want a good test about assurance of salvation? You say, well, that's subjective. Not really. How are your wants and God's oughts dealing with one another? Have you found that they're they're, they're actually in sync more often than not? See, this is a circumcised heart. Now, Now, this is a gross, bloody symbol. It can be even creepy, but I don't want you to miss this. It was the picture, the circumcision of Christ that we now are able to experience. I want you to see that with me now in Romans, I'm sorry, Colossians. And I want you to turn over as we conclude to Colossians chapter 2, verse number 11. Colossians 2, Verse 11, it's page 984 in your pew Bibles. In Christ also you were what? With a circumcision made without hands. So we're not talking about the physical seal by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, Who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses. And how did he do it? He was circumcised on the cross by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to an open shame by triumphing over them in him. What is he saying here? He's saying there was a circumcision of Christ. He's not referring to when Jesus was circumcised physically on the eighth day and he received his name, Jesus. He's referring to another moment where he was cut off. And now we get to enjoy the benefits of his being cut off so that we do not have to be cut off. Maybe I could help you just a little bit. The way that they would use make deals or agreements in Old Testament times in the first century were were much different than the way that we would do it. They didn't just sign their name. They would act it out. So for instance, you may be reading the scriptures and somebody makes a promise and they take some ash or dust and they put it on their head. And they're basically saying, if I don't keep my promise, I want this this dust. I want to be turned into dust. Or maybe like you see in in the book of Ruth um, where there's this, this sandal that you tap on somebody's head these were the way they make agreements. Or, or they may do this. They may walk through an animal that's been cut in half. And they walk through it. And they're saying, if I don't keep my commitment, I want to be like this animal cut in half. Circumcision is like that. It is a putting off or it is a cutting off someone from their relationship with God. That is the picture. We see this immediately immediately. After Adam and Eve sin, what happens? What's set outside the garden where they can't come back in? Cherubim, they have a sword. The only way to go through is to go under the sword. We see these cherubim showing up again in the holy place. And there's no opportunity to come to the mercy seat except one day a year, and the blood must be shed. Here Colossians says, the circumcision of Christ now is ours because he took our cutting off so that we will never be cut off from God. And that happened when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so he was cut off so that you will never be cut off. Now turn back to Romans 2 as we conclude. And I want you to see how this works. How does this circumcision of heart, how is it applied to your life? Well, we see God is involved in this And here in the last phrase, he says, This circumcision is a matter of the what? By the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. He's saying this, folks, that Jesus was circumcised on the cross when he took all of your sins, every one of them, past, present, and future, he nailed them to the cross. He was cut off for you so that you'll never be cut off again. There will never be a moment, listen to this believer, where your sins will ever be brought up before the tribunal of God ever. The new covenant teaches us that your sins and iniquities I will remember no more. And the joy of this is supposed to bring us to the understanding that Jesus was circumcised on the cross for us The Spirit applies it to our lives, giving us new desires. And the Father could not be more pleased with you now. Do you see that? It's no longer about pleasing people or even myself. One of the terrors of being an introvert is you can become a perfectionist and your greatest slave driver is yourself. No longer have to worry about pleasing myself or other humans by religious activity I only need the pleasure and smile of who? God. And when you've been circumcised of heart, you are accepted in the beloved. So let's finish this way. So what if you've been... Good. So what if you're a church member? Good. This only counts for anything if there's been a real change in your life. If your heart has been truly affected for anything, if there has been a real change in your life, Don't you know that you're not a Christian if you're only one externally? Yes? That real Christianity is not about having confidence in external things. No, a Christian is someone who's a Christian on the inside. This is a warning passage, and I want to say this as I conclude. I don't believe that Romans 1 is as applicable to our church as Romans 2. Orthodox churches, evangelical, evangelical, conservative churches, are the most prone to dead orthodoxy. And he here is undressed them and he said, Your confidence is ill fated. You should not be confident. You should not be assured. Because if you're resting on religious ritual, it will all fall short. We're only justified by faith in Jesus Christ was circumcised on the cross for our sins. He was put off. He was cut off so that we would never be cut off. Amen. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for even passages like this that are difficult for us on first, second, sometimes third read. But I pray that you would apply these truths to our hearts, transform us. May we enjoy circumcised hearts where we begin to want the things that we ought to do. We praise you for how you've regenerated us, Spirit of God. You've given us new desires, new tastes, new wants, and we discover that they're your taste and your wants and your desires. And we praise you for that supernatural work. We pray for more of it as we walk in the Spirit. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.